Right. Listen to the word of God. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that you might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And when the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on the account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that through your word proclaimed we may encounter you, the living word. The title of this week's sermon uh, is This Women's Work, which I unashamedly stole from Kate Bush. It's a Kate Bush song. And some of you may remember the movie that she actually wrote the song for the movie. Uh, It was a John Hughes film. I guess it was in the 80s. She's Having a Baby. I don't remember that movie or not. It starred Kevin Bacon and Elizabeth Montgomery. So this sermon is one degree separated from Kevin Bacon, okay? <laughs> if you ever played that game, okay? Uh, anyway, in the, in the movie, um, they're just kind of kids that get married, and they're pretty immature. She gets pregnant, and everything is fine until the baby's being delivered, and uh, I think the baby's breached, and there's a point in the story where he's not sure if the baby or she is going to survive. And that's when this song plays. There's a great version. As a matter of fact, I put it on the Facebook page by Maxwell. That's actually my favorite version. It's a beautiful song. But anyway, here are some of the opening lines. Uh, and Kate Bush wrote it from the perspective of the man. Pray God you can cope. I'll stand outside this woman's work, this woman's world. Ooh, it's hard on a man. Now his part is over. Now starts the craft of the Father, and the Father's capitalized, so meaning meaning God. And then he goes on and says, I know you got a little bit of strength left. And then he goes on to talk about, give me back those moments, give me back to them. I should have done this, I should have done that. And then the song goes through a kind of a whole list of, of kind of what he should have done. Regret. You know, regret is something we usually feel after the fact, right? When it's too late to do anything about it. And the song is full of Regret and fear as the woman he loves um, may or may not survive. Um, it's funny, I, I think one of the most famous songs when I think of regrets is that song, My Way. Uh, you know, Elvis sang it, Frank Sinatra sang it, I think Paul Anka wrote it. Yeah, you know, you know, everybody sings it. You know, they even play it at inaugural balls and things like that. But there's a line in it that says, you know, regrets that I've had a few. But, you know, none too few to mention. Okay, wait a minute. Frank Sinatra? Elvis? I think there are a lot of regrets they should have had, right? Um, 
And actually, I think this passage, it's, a, it's an interesting passage, but I think there's a lot of regrets around this passage as well. Um, and it's, it's really interesting, even the life this story has in the tradition of the church, I think says a lot about why we still don't necessarily get it. It's pretty obvious the men in the room that day didn't get it, but I would argue that men and women throughout the history of the church probably haven't gotten it as well. This uh, last week did a podcast, and you know, I do the podcast, and we picked the subject on the whole controversy around Joe Biden, and we, we kind of used that as an object lesson of what do you do when mores are changing and the tricky thing about, uh, uh, you know, uh, touching and, and, and the world we live in and things like that. And uh, I thought I was being very careful how I was talking about it. But we were doing a Facebook Live, and someone who I think holds me in great affection sent me a message saying, why are you men talking about this? And you should have a woman on. And I, Well, the reason we didn't have a woman on is that we usually make these things up as we go along. So that would have required planning to have someone there as a guest. And then at one point, she said, you're mansplaining, Bill. Okay. All right, now obviously I think I knew what that means, but I did research to make sure I knew what I was being accused of. And I went to the BBC. So if you can't trust the BBC, who can you trust? I immediately regretted that I went to the BBC because there was a whole large article plus a chart. And I hate those charts where, you know, like you start here and if you do this, you, you know, I, all right, I always get confused. But I, according to the BBC, I was not mansplaining I was vindicated, all right, because I used a lot of qualifiers in my talk. You don't have to listen to it, but I was very careful. And the last, the last aspect of mansplaining, how does bias affect your interpretation? Well, the truth is, bias affects all of our interpretations of everything. And I think I was not guilty of mansplaining in that situation, although I'm sure I've done it before. But I think the whole tradition around this text is one large object lesson in mansplaining. First of all, there's three different versions of this story. Some of you may be confused because, you know, you've heard probably all of the different versions. Mark and Matthew have the same version of the story, and I've talked about it before. Mark is the first gospel written out of Matthew and Mark. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark's the first one. John is a, is a total other subject, okay? But in Luke's gospel... The incident of the woman anointing Jesus happens in the Galilee, and it's at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Okay? And it's an unnamed woman of ill repute. That's all it says. In Matthew, or Mark and Matthew, and Matthew basically follows Mark, it takes place at the same time John's gospel takes place. It's in the last week of Jesus' life. It happens in Bethany. It's just like John's gospel, but it's at Simon the leper's house, and it's an unnamed woman. Okay, and of course John's gospel has it happening at in Bethany, where just the chapter before Jesus has risen Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus is the brother of Mary Martha, and they tend to be close associates of Jesus. They're friends of Jesus. Now. What's interesting, to make it even more complicated, the tradition has this being Mary Magdalene 
who is, who is doing this, right? Particularly in the Western tradition. If you see art or if you hear stories about it, even if you waste your time and watch the Da Vinci Code, okay, all right, then you probably got somehow this was all Mary Magdalene. Okay. And one level is understandable. There are a bunch of Marys in the Gospel, okay, and the tradition gets the Marys confused. There are at least six Marys in the Gospel, okay? Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene. Uh, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, Mary, the mother of James and John, and a couple other Marys. And to make it even more complicated, they all seem to show up at the resurrection. (laughs) So you can understand why in the history of the church, people got their Marys mixed up. What I think is interesting, though, that this story becomes associated with Mary Magdalene. And even though the text doesn't say it, Mary Magdalene is portrayed in tradition as being a woman, uh, a fallen woman, if you would. A professional fallen woman, if you would. Which the Bible doesn't say she was. And I actually think part of this story made the men in charge uncomfortable a bit, right? Because they almost have to make Mary... The act of Mary doing is something that's a little shady on the side. But if this is Mary, the sister of Martha, this is Mary of Bethany, the one other place where she's talked about in Luke, Jesus celebrates her piety. He says Mary has chosen the greater portion. And I think part of this is that we're just a little bit uncomfortable. We don't really know quite how to love Jesus. And so what's really interesting to me is, you know, in John's gospel, one of the problems that the early church had to figure out is why did Judas do what he did? And the larger problem was why would Jesus pick somebody, you know, why, you know, Jesus should have been better HR than that, right? Okay. Okay. I would argue that by any standards, Jesus as an HR manager wasn't very good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Including us, right? <laughs> Our followers. All right. But um, uh, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't quite know what to do with the fact that Judas betrays Jesus. John figures it out. He's the devil. He's a thief. Okay. And so in, Mark, in John's gospel, it is Judas who says, this money should have been spent for the poor. In Mark's gospel, it's all the men in the room. All the disciples are, t- are selling Jesus. And you know, it's interesting, in Mark's gospel, they're yelling at the woman, but who are they really mad at? Jesus. Jesus, this should be used for the cause. This should be. This is. This is. This is a huge investment. We could sell this, and we could set up our foundation for the well-being of the poor in Galilee and beyond. And and this passage has been misused over the years. Okay, matter of fact, Jesus clearly is not saying, "Don't worry about the poor." Right? That's not what he's saying here. Okay, but I've heard people justify not caring about the poor based on this passage. That's not what he's saying. Jesus, for the last months of his life, has been saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. But no one wanted to hear that. That's not the kind of Messiah they wanted. The only person apparently listening 
was this woman. You know what? There's nothing she could do about it. There's nothing she can do about Jesus dying. But she wants to show him that she's been listening. And that she loves him. You know, it's interesting to me that we are probably all more like the disciples than this woman. You know, if Jesus came back today the way he came the first time, it would be a great moment of Christian unity. You know why? Because the evangelicals and the progressives would get together and say, we need to stop this guy. This Jesus is doing stuff not the way we think it should be done. We don't like his politics. We don't like his program. He says things that make us feel bad and uncomfortable. So we need to get rid of him. And they'd have a joint commission. And, you know, they would come together for one brilliant moment to say, we need to get rid of Jesus once again. Um, You know, the question we have to ask with the disciples, is Jesus faith in a personal idea? Or a dogma? Is Jesus a projection of your own spiritual journey? Is Jesus representative of your cause? Or is Jesus someone we have a relationship with? A relationship with the living God? Mary was apparently was the only one in the room who knew what she should be doing. And Matthew and Mark say that what she has done shall be celebrated or Jesus says, what she has done will be remembered throughout the history of the church. But the people in that room didn't understand that. And I would say that through a lot of church history, people who gather in rooms like this, we haven't totally gotten it. Yeah. You know, if, if there was a murder mystery, do you guys, I, I don't know if you like murder mysteries or not. I, I tend to like British murder mysteries. Maybe it's just the ac- the accent, you know, helps me. I'm, I'm watching this Welch series now. I don't watch a lot of television, but it's a Welch. It's BBC, but Welch. But I have to have the closed captions on. They're speaking English, but I can't. You know, I had so I'm, it's like a, I'm having closed captions on. Yeah. If Jesus, if if we were detectives, and it was our job to figure out, all right, what got Jesus killed? I would want to get everybody who was in that room that night together. And I would say, okay, what exactly happened that last night you all were gathered in that room? Mary, why were you doing what you were doing? And then, hey, what was wrong? What were the rest of you feeling? And the text is pretty clear in Mark's gospel. It's immediately after this incident that Judas goes out and conspires with the Pharisees and the Sadducees about how to kill him. I think people are disillusioned with Jesus here because he's not doing things the way they thought he should be doing them. He already, I think he lost them. By the time they got to Thursday night, he had probably lost most of them. I mean, we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday, right? The mob, yay, Jesus, on Sunday. And then on Thursday, crucify him, crucify him. All right, and we give Jesus our time, and he deserves it. He betrayed the Lord. But hey, what about Rocky? 
denies him. And what about the rest of the guys? They ran. Matter of fact, who are the only people that stayed at the cross? It was the women. The women. So how do we love Jesus? Right? It was a question we asked in the children's sermon. Because um, apparently the guys around the table thought they loved him, but they, they obviously didn't love him enough or love him right. Well, I, I don't really know to tell you how exactly what does it mean, how do you love Jesus, okay? Uh, I, don't think, I don't think Mary really knew either. I think she just... He's the best person I've ever known. He's the most amazing man. He's shown me God. He's going to die. How do I show him my heart? And the people around her just didn't get it. In part because they didn't love him enough. Which is always the danger of being a religious person. Of getting in the road of things and forgetting who you really love. I've told this story before, but um, the first time I went to a Presbyterian church, I was in the process of going to start considering joining the Presbyterian church. I had grown up in kind of country, evangelical, revivalist kind of churches. So this Presbyterian church was, you know, the first church of that town. Okay, It was founded in 1720 uh, by Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. Some of the original members were still there. Um, yeah. <laughs> Where's George? I need you on the drum up there. Help me out here. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> and it was it was a beautiful church, very formal, and you actually you know they had the, the pew. You could still have the doors on the pews, and uh, so you walk in. Your t- first of all, your first terror is this looks like a church where people actually where people have their own pews, and so <laughs> so the first terror you have is. All right, I don't want to sit in anybody's pew. So you kind of navigate through there. It's very quiet. And it's beautiful. You know, so we, we make a guess. Hopefully this is not anybody's pew sitting there, kind of nervous. And on the, on the right side of the church was a beautiful original Tiffany stained glass of, of Jesus the Good Shepherd. Absolutely beautiful. And my oldest son, Ben, was two or three at the time. <clears throat> And he looks at the painting, or at the stained glass. And we're sitting there right before church starts. He goes, Jesus! I go, okay. Daddy, it's Jesus! I go, all right. Shh. You know, people are looking around. You know, whatever shade of red I can turn, I'm there already. And he's, he's there. So his face is beaming. I go, okay. And he goes, if I go, Daddy! It's Jesus! I said, Ben, be quiet. This is a church. <laughs> right? Can we, be the, can we not be the most guilty of Jesus squelching? It was all those saints. St. Peter, St. John, St. James, St. Matthew. Some of the guys helped write the book sitting around that table. 
but they didn't understand what she was doing because most tragically she didn't understand they didn't understand what Jesus was doing blessed are those who love much because they have been forgiven much and they know how much Jesus has done for us in the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit Amen and Amen Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Nicene Creed.